When a family is referred to Child Protective Services, it starts a cascading process of hoops to jump through and boxes to check. Most states have strict and complex bureaucratic rules to follow. I was hoping to see Marilyn. She's been our caseworker the last couple years. Well, uh, the turnover rate in our field is, is quite high. It's, it's really a wonder Marilyn lasted as long as she did. In the TV series, Shameless, characters regularly wrangle with Child Protective Services. So, how can I help you? You can give me the addresses where the kids were placed. I already told you I can't give out any information about the case until the intakes are complete. Come on. Marilyn always used to give me the info just so I can know they're okay and can get them stuff like books or clothes or whatever. Well, that is a clear violation of policy on Marilyn's part. Hey, I know you think you're helping, but as someone who's been in and out of the system their whole life, I can tell you it's a nightmare. These kids have a big sister who loves them, and I just want to make sure they're okay. Some experts argue the administrative work required to move through the system can actually make it even harder to keep families together. And so what I found very frustrating is that rather than focusing on everything this mother had been able to accomplish, her inability to complete the parenting class became the point of review and focus. And because of that, she was unable to get more visitation time with her children. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, building a better protection system for kids. Later, many young adults whose parents have been incarcerated come away with surprising motivation. What I'm hearing is, is that they really feel obligated to become that stable caretaker for their half-siblings, especially those who are younger. But first, after spending years working in the field, Krista Moore understands the heartbreak and reward of working with Child Protective Services. Moore is now a sociology professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise, and she says our child welfare system should operate more like collaborative care and less like bureaucratic punishment. Krista, for years you worked in child welfare in the state with the highest rate of child mistreatment in the nation. Tell me about that experience. Sure. So Kentucky is not only the state with one of the highest rates, well, actually the highest rate of substantiated child maltreatment in the nation for going on the third year in a row. But it also is a state that is deeply impacted by issues of poverty, food insecurity. It's a very rural state. So resources designed to help families are not always easily accessible. Kentucky's funding for supportive programs has not always been stable. And so there's also um, a constant battle to keep a sufficient amount of resources. And so those aspects of the work can be really frustrating from that bureaucratic perspective, but also the work itself, seeing families who are hurting who care so deeply but are unsure what to do to help themselves as parents and their children to thrive. It's very emotional work to see the sincerity coupled with just the pain of deprivation. Give me an example of a family or a parent you saw working hard to do right by the children, mm -hmm. but state welfare still had to step in. It's kind of a cultural myth that families who come into the Child Protective Services system, that they don't love their children. These families desperately love their children. Their home environments are just really complicated and challenging. So I remember so clearly working with a single mother whose children had come to the attention of Child Protective Services because they had gone to school and consistently asked for food and shared with their teachers that they were hungry. And so when I was asked to become involved with the mom and her children, I was working for a program called Family Preservation, which is a program that allows a care worker to go into the family's home and work with them where they're most comfortable. Sure. Like, how can I figure out food for you? 
Yes, that's exactly what I went in and did. We sat down, we talked, we identified, right, that she was working multiple jobs because she was a single mom and she still wasn't making quite enough to stitch everything together, the household bills, her transportation needs and gas, and provide enough food for the family. And she was so embarrassed and ashamed that she was unable to provide and meet all of her children's food needs. And so we talked through those feelings and we went together to those food banks and to those programs. And I helped her complete the applications and I helped provide assistance through transportation and also just so much reassurance. She just didn't have the emotional support to do that on her own. You also had an experience and probably many, many where you were frustrated by how punitive the system seemed to be with a mother who was trying to do the right thing by her children. So that was another single mother I worked with. Her children had been removed. Three children between the ages of three and five. And they were found outside playing while she was sleeping inside the house. And so there wasn't an adult providing supervision for them while they were playing outside. And so I worked with her for about a month. And what I found really frustrating in that case, Sarah, is watching her work so hard to do everything the court and Child Protective Services had asked her to do. And because of her work schedule, she worked at a factory long hours. She had not been able to go to everyone of the parenting education classes that she had been asked to complete before that court date. And so what I found very frustrating is that rather than focusing on everything this mother had been able to accomplish, her inability to complete that parenting class became the point of review and focus. And because of that perceived failure, she was unable to get more supervised visitation time with her children. And eventually, her children did end up being removed and placed with relatives who uh, eventually adopted them. Did she go through trauma over that? Oh, it was very traumatic. She was tearful and crying and very emotional every time that we met. The younger two really didn't understand anything other than I want to be with my mom, and why can't I be with my mom? And during visits, they would have a really emotional time at the end with having to leave when the supervised visit ended. Her older child, a son, who was very, very bright, had a lot of questions that she was just simply unable to answer because she didn't know the answer. She didn't know when they would get to come back home. She didn't know when she would be able to have longer time with him. She didn't know when he'd be able to come back and spend the night in his own room. She was just at a loss for how to help him and support him through that trauma. What typically were the kinds of cases that came in, and how were they first identified as a rule? Child maltreatment cases come in in many different ways. And anyone who's a professional who works with children is considered to be a mandated reporter. Teachers in schools and also hospitals, doctors, and nurses. Hunger is a common reason. Also, um, children coming to school wearing the same clothes day after day or looking or smelling as though they haven't had a bath recently. Children who have bruises that are either visible or um, that they share because they're sore and hurting and not able to sit still in the classroom. And not only bruises, but also cuts and lacerations and other common injuries. You have been studying a collaborative care model where you engage with families as partners rather than make the families encounter a more punitive kind of system. Would you say that often child welfare does feel punitive to the parents? Yes, it always feels punitive to the parents. Um, There are very few cases where parents actually seek help 
from Child Protective Services and feel as though they have received help in a positive way. Now, I'm not saying that never happens because, of course, it does. But as a system, a child welfare system, there is a lot of focus on catching parents in the act and then a, a really more of a an overemphasis on going through the process and you know, if parents don't successfully do as they're told, then they're seen as resistant and need to be penalized in some way. So there's really this this atmosphere, right, where the parents are the other. They're not a member of the decision-making team. Now, other states do this differently and have better rates of substantiated child maltreatment than Kentucky does. And so that's something that I have been looking at and exploring. So, for example, Kentucky, which has the highest rate of substantiated child maltreatment, also has a more highly bureaucratic and a more penalty-oriented culture than other states. For example, Pennsylvania, which has the lowest rate of substantiated child maltreatment, has a very family-supportive and collaborative culture of working with families when they come to the attention of Child Protective Services. How effective is working with families as opposed to citing families and being more punitive? Oh, it makes all the difference. All the difference. When families feel involved and engaged in their own decision-making and planning, they become far more empowered. They report feeling a sense of ownership, a sense of choice. Whereas when parents are not involved, when they are in the room and care workers are talking about them instead of with them, you can see just the sorrow and the exclusion uh, on their face, in their body language, the disempowerment is, is just, it's so present in those moments. How many states have the, the punitive bureaucratic model and how many have the other? So, so far, my co-researcher, Tricia Dewan, who is at the University of Louisville and I, have gotten through about half the states. And so of the 25 that we have analyzed so far, approximately eight states um, have this higher degree of bureaucratic penalty-oriented culture. What we are finding is that the culture is aligning with the substantiated rates of child maltreatment, and that's profound. So if you were working in a state that has a highly bureaucratic and penalty-oriented system, then the ways that you are trained and educated to work with families, it's filled with power and and exclusion. (laughs) So you may not see the parents as a partner. You see them as a client, and those parents better do what they're told or they're not going to get their kids back or they're not going to get to keep their kids these are the types of services to families and children that cannot be standardized. Every family is unique. Every child uh, is unique. And so when you try to impose these uh, rigidly bureaucratized uh, organizational systems on human services and especially child welfare and family services, What you end up doing is actually constraining the ability of care workers and professionals in the field to extend and offer more authentic forms of care because when you're spending a bulk of your work hours doing the minutia that's required for uh, standardized reporting, you either don't have the time or you don't have the energy to provide authentic care to families Does it cost more to do collaborative? I don't think so. So, for example, when families receive family preservation services, they have better outcomes, which means more children get to stay in the home with their parents. More children get to return home from foster care. And these services have been shown to have uh, over a 90% success rate. Krista Moore, Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you, Sarah. I so appreciate it. 
Krista Moore is a sociology professor at the University of Virginia College at Wise. There's a fair amount of research about how young kids are affected by having parents who are incarcerated. But how does it affect those young people as they get older? Heidi Williams is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. She's found that many young adults whose parents were incarcerated are actually extra motivated to succeed, and particularly to help their younger siblings. Heidi, you teach a class on families and people who are in prison. What do you know about how having parents in prison affects younger children? Well, I mean, there's a difference between paternal and maternal incarceration. So whether or not you have mom or dad incarcerated, what we're really seeing is that when dads are incarcerated, moms essentially convert to single parenthood. And oftentimes that means that they either have to double up with extended kin, so maybe the mom's parents or Often they end up homeless because their income diminishes greatly. In terms of whether a mom is incarcerated, what we're seeing is that uh, maternal grandmothers really step up and take these children into their own households, or children unfortunately end up in foster care, um, which we do know is um, arguably one of the most tragic um, childhood experiences according to the research. I just can't imagine a family surviving that. Actually, the, the the young adults who I've had the opportunity to talk with are faring really well overall. Right. Yeah, they actually talk about how having a parent who is in jail or prison has actually benefited them, which I was really surprised to hear. A lot of our participants are college students, and so they talk about how watching their parents, they learned what they didn't want to be. And so they were able to figure out what they wanted to be. And so education was the pathway that they took. For example, many of them are psychology majors to try to understand how the brain is affected by crime and then how children's brains are affected by parental crime, et cetera. But um, how this has led to a sense of belonging for them. They really want to be able to give back um, which I think is really fascinating. Um, they're really they really express a lot of agency. What do you mean? What kind of agency? And and go back to helping me understand what their circumstances are. Um, yeah. So some of them have mom and or dad who are incarcerated. So a lot of my participants grew up with grandmothers or their other parent, and so. They express a lot of gratitude. I was really also struck by how many of them used words like fortunate and grateful, lucky. They would say things like, well, I'm really grateful that I had my grandmother because that meant that I wouldn't end up in foster care. I wouldn't be separated from my siblings. Or I'm really grateful for my mom, um, who was my anchor parent, um, while dad was incarcerated. And in terms of agency, they're saying things like, you know, mom, while mom's incarcerated, she'll call me and she wants me to send her money. And and I say, no, I can't do that. I'm happy to talk with you on the phone, but I'm not sending you money because I need to spend my money on college. I need to make sure that I'm successful. And so what, what I'm taking from that really is that they're shedding this guilt that really enveloped them earlier in their lives. And they're realizing that they can create something positive from their experiences. So they really want to, again, they want to take the gratitude that they feel and be able to be that anchor person for four children who are going through similar experiences. Were there cases you heard about where children were sort of caught up in their parents' crime or sort of emulating it? Oh, sure. Um, there was a participant who was asked by her father to go down the road with him. So she and her sister were put in this van. Of course, they're kids. She said she was around eight at the time. So she was looking out the window. And they noticed that the truck collides with the van. And then they push the truck over a ravine. And the uncle is in the truck 
as they're pushing it um, over the ravine. And so she said that they were hoping to be able to capitalize on insurance money. But the police came to the scene and they questioned uh, my participant and her sister. And of course, they're little kids. So they said, oh, yeah, we saw them push the truck over the ravine. And so I asked participant, you know, how she felt about it. And she said, well, it was wrong and I wasn't going to lie about it. What else really surprised you in talking to the small group of young adults who had had incarcerated parents? It's probably the most important finding, I think, is that these young adults really look to their siblings as their reference groups, right? So especially for the young adults who have half-siblings, they're looking at their lives as if they've somehow been lucky in terms of having a, a really stable caretaker, so whether that's grandma or the other parent, and they can look at their half-sibling and notice the consequences that they didn't experience. And what I'm hearing is, is that they really feel obligated to become that stable caretaker for their half-siblings, especially those who are younger, right? And so, for example, one of my participants um, told me that she's getting a college degree, and as soon as she gets a job, she's going to file for full custody of her two younger half-siblings. You know, when you talk about the gratitude of some of these kids, do you think that means that prison helped them, prison for their parents helped them, and that prison was the answer for their parents? I don't think that prison is the answer. I think that prison is what we have. And what I mean by that is when we're looking at the ways in which we allocate money in the U.S., we have money that goes into human services programs, and then we have money that's allocated to the criminal justice program. And what we're seeing is, is that sometimes people who are incarcerated don't have access to resources until they get into jail or prison. And that's where they finally have access to health care. Um, especially mental health care. And so I think that it is a poor substitute or a poor proxy for what I would consider good health care and good mental health care. Um, and I think that it's a sad testament that that's where our country is um, in terms of the ways in which we do try to meet the needs of families. Because the, the most important thing that I try to teach my students is that when we're thinking about crime, um, or criminals. We tend to think of criminals as being lone individuals, but really the vast majority of criminals are embedded within family systems that are completely disrupted by incarceration. Uh -huh. And so I would say it's virtually impossible to not destabilize the family system for everyone, including grandparents, if a parent is incarcerated. Did any of the young people that you interviewed offer advice for kids who are going through the same thing, parents who are incarcerated? Oh, yeah. It was one of the questions that I asked, um, what would you do, right? Um, what would you suggest to kids who are going through similar experiences? And overwhelmingly, they talked about um, getting in contact with somebody um, who could be a role model, who could be a mentor. But importantly, um, they don't want this to be somebody who has a license, right? So not an actual therapist or a social worker because they don't want to be labeled. So if you think about it, this makes a lot of sense because they are living under their parents' label in many ways, right? And so they don't want to be diagnosed. They don't want any kind of label. They simply want people to talk to. So for example, one participant talked about how she went to an elementary school with other children whose parents were incarcerated, and they had a lunch group once a week. And this was, she said, was really informal. The teachers sort of just put them together, and they stayed friends. And yeah. she said they didn't really talk too much about it. Like, everybody knew, but nobody really talked about it. Um, but it was just very comforting. Another really interesting finding is that a lot of them, I asked them how they hoped their futures would be. Like, what specifically do you want besides just education? Um, a lot of them did talk about wanting to have their own children, but 
almost everybody talked about wanting to have a lot of land. So acres of land, a big house um, with lots of room to run. And I think this is really symbolic, right? That they want the freedom to be able to meander, right? They want to be able to give their kids this space where they can just be. And I think that is really profound. And the fact that all I asked them was, how do you want, how do you see your future? And it was, I want a lot of land. Because one of my participants said that she was absolutely fascinated by this house that her mom was able to get after her father was incarcerated because it had a second story. And she said, I had never been in a house with a second story. And I want my kids to know that houses like that exist. Um, so these are, I mean, simple things, really, right? But also things that offer, I think, freedom and protection. You know, you've had so much immersion with these kids and these young adults. What can you share with us that you want us to understand about their experience? Because there's so many people out there that we don't even know have had this experience. Uh-huh. They are so resilient, they don't want us to pity them or feel sorry for them. They want us to understand that their lives are separate from their parents. Yes, their lives have been influenced and shaped by parental incarceration, but that they are, they're not victims. They definitely know what they want and they're going to get it. And they're going to pay back um, the people that they're grateful for in ways that they think will help future generations of children. So, for example, I think one of the most interesting uh, interviews that I did was a girl who kept saying that she was grateful for her grandmother because she wasn't in foster care. And so she volunteered at a foster care program. And she said, it, it just is really humbling to see how these kids' lives are so much different than mine and how these kids are sent back um, to their parents over and over, and they come back to this program. And she said, you know, all they want is to learn how to play the guitar or, you know, have somebody to talk to. And so I think the biggest thing is that really just simple adjustments could help this population so much. Um, they're not asking for much. All they really want us to do is treat them as humans. Heidi Williams is a sociology professor at Virginia Tech. Her research is funded by Virginia Tech's Center for Peace Studies and Violence Prevention. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Given all the development in Northern Virginia, outside Washington, D.C., it might surprise you to hear it's home to a brand new farm. Even more surprising, it's not a flower farm or a vegetable farm, it's a body farm. Mary Ellen O'Toole and Anthony Falsetti teach in the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University. They're relying on their extensive careers uncovering crime to direct the region's first body farm lab. Mary Ellen, tell me about the new lab at George Mason University, which is more casually known as the body farm. So our, our new lab is designed to really take a look at human decomposition. And the reason that it's so important is because law enforcement works cases. And oftentimes, victims of homicides, uh, people that go missing, they are found outside. And those scenes become very important. And we have to understand what does the environment and the climate and the animals, the uh, predators, what what do they do um, when they interact with human remains? And what does that look like when the forensic anthropologist like Tony comes to the scene? So what can he expect to see in those cases in the mid-Atlantic area, which is going to be different from people that go to these scenes in Florida and people that go to these scenes in Texas. So we're looking at these in order to help us to resolve future cases. 
I read this body farm is one of only seven in the entire world. Where are the others? Well, they're scattered throughout the country. I mean, we're very excited to join this very uh, small group of research institutions. There's the original one down at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where I had a, you know, an opportunity to work there when I was a graduate student um, many years ago now. There's one out in Colorado, up at a mile high at Colorado Mesa. There's one down in North Carolina. There is one up in Michigan, near the frost line. So each one will produce information about the postmortem interval unique to those climatic areas, estimating the time since death will become more accurate. Mary Ellen, there's another body farm in Texas, and a really terrific example of the kind of things we can learn from body farms in the field. There was a very interesting paper, and I know Tony can weigh in on this, but I saw it right after I had retired from the FBI as an agent and a profiler. And one of the findings that they had in this paper was that they had these large birds down in Texas that were landing on the human donors in their body farm. And these birds were causing bruising to the bodies. And as a profiler and sitting around the behavioral analysis unit discussing a homicide case, we look at the um, the injury pattern to the body. And it's not unfrequent that we might see a series of bruises and we have to make sense out of it. So we would discuss that in context with, well, the offender inflicted those injuries. But now we have a report out of Texas. Those injuries could have been postmortem. So that was really critical piece of information for us. Birds moving a body 180 degrees is fascinating and not at all what I would have expected. You know, as a profiler, as a homicide investigator, as a forensic anthropologist, we're not there when the uh, person is murdered. We're not there when their bodies are disposed. We're not there when that missing hiker dies. We're not there. And what we're left with is our ability to interpret correctly what we see. And obviously, interpretation is just that. It's the interpretation of what we see, but it's not 100% correct. And that interpretation can be influenced by the environment, by the predators, the birds, and um, the other animals at the scene. It can be affected by um, the bugs. It can be affected by, you know, the weather. So interpretation is not exact science. And so the more that we can bolster up the exact science based on what we want to do at our body farm and what other body farms are doing, it just makes our interpretation that more exact. Um, what is a body farm? How do you get the bodies? And what are you looking at? What do you do with the bodies? That's a very good question. So a body farm is a, uh, is a research facility where uh, forensic scientists study the time since death. What happens to human remains when they are left in the environment, whether they are buried or on the surface? How deep are they buried? At what time of year is the body or the donor exposed to the elements? So what do you do? How do you get bodies and where do you put them? Each institution gets them in different ways. I, I know that uh, for us here uh, at George Mason University, our donors are going to come directly through the anatomical gifting program of the state of Virginia. So individuals who want to donate their bodies to science go through a, a, a unified program down in Richmond. And so uh, people who want to donate their body to the George Mason University Forensic Science Facility simply tick a box and you're welcome here at Mason. Has anyone yet ticked a box? We have had many, many people tick that box. Uh, the good news is they are very healthy. Uh, so we are still waiting <laughs> for our first donor, uh, but no, it, it has generated a great deal of interest. What about the two of you? Either of you considering this? I'm already going to Tennessee. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Back when you were in graduate school, you worked at the first body farm ever Tell me about that and how it came into being. Well, the original body farm at the University of Tennessee uh, came into being uh, because a very popular professor and a, a tremendous forensic scientist made a mistake. 
And it's Dr. Bill Bass's story to tell. But he was called to examine a skeleton that had been exposed, you know, possibly by scavengers. And he looked at the skeleton, looked at the condition of, of the bones, and declared that the time since death was several years. Additional evidence comes in within the next several days, and it turns out that this individual was dead for over 130 years. And so this spurred Dr. Bass on to ask his dean at the time uh, for an acre of property uh, in Knoxville where he could study the time since death. And that's really how it started. So as a as a junior at the University of Tennessee, taking human osteology from Dr. Bass, I had the opportunity, <laughs> call it an opportunity, to go help place several donors. So that was my introduction to uh, the body farm and the whole forensic anthropology approach to uh, clandestine graves. Give me examples from some real cases of how water and nature or plants and animals have affected bodies in ways that were important to solving time-of-death cases? There are many examples. I had a a case um, out of Tampa, Florida, where the decedent was found partially submerged in water, and the estimate of the time since death was fairly narrow originally. But we were able to go back Uh, along with a forensic botanist, Dr. David Hall, and determined that the time since death was as long as six or eight years. The main suspect in the case was actually in Florida at that time. And how had plants helped you determine it was more like six years? Right. So this is one of those great things that can happen in collaborative research. So we, we we had a part of the the body, the pelvis, and there was a root that had grown through one of the holes in bones. And so this was a great piece of evidence because what it told us was that that plant grew, you know, that distance after the body had decomposed because it couldn't do it when there was still tissue there. And so the botanist was able to, first of all, identify the plant, what species it was, and then he was able to determine how long it would take a root to grow through a part of the body that would otherwise be inaccessible unless you had decomposed. One of the ways in which a body farm is critical is estimating the time since death even more directly using insects. Insects are terrific uh, sentinels in the environment. They are attracted to decaying things in the world and including humans. And they're very good at estimating the time since death because as soon as they land on a body, they lay eggs. And and we can estimate how long a body has been dead based on the presence of a certain species and the development of their young. And this is really important because after about 48 hours, there are no other ways of estimating the time since death that are very accurate. I read that you're planning to do some experiments with cadaver dogs. What kinds of experiments? And why would that be useful? What do we not know about the abilities of cadaver dogs? What we don't know is how long an odor from human remains might exist in the environment. Uh, We don't know how long it would exist if a body has been on the surface and subsequently moved. We don't know... Mm -hmm how long it might exist in soil. And that's one of the areas of research that we will be looking into is how long does scent last? If it is, um, if it's collected and if it's stored properly, um, that's probably going to enable it to last longer than if something, a a piece of clothing is just tossed in the backseat of a car. So that's exactly something that we, you know, we want to better understand. And why is that important? Well, Because in a missing persons case or in a homicide case, you might have an item of evidence from the victim. Um, And investigation continues over days or weeks or months, um, and you have a single item of of evidence, you want to know how long that will last. How long will that be productive for the dog to use? You're also conducting research at the body farm with honeybees. 
How can honeybees help you at all in finding dead bodies? So honeybees in are great sentinels of everything in our environment, meaning they go out in the environment and they sample, uh, looking for the nutrition that they need to create the honeycombs and sustain themselves. So they are sampling all the plants in the environment. We also know that these volatile organic compounds of decomposition transmit themselves up through the soils. Uh, they travel through water and we believe into plants. Uh, we have a researcher here on campus who is worked out the experimental design to look at the proteins from the honey, which is the key. Yeah. Uh, the proteins in the honey tell a researcher where that bee has been, what they have fed on, and that will be our, our way of looking at the efficacy of honeybees as sentinels uh, for decomposing bodies. <laughs> that is so cool. Has that ever been successfully done elsewhere? Not the way we are doing it. However, we have uh, been working with some researchers that uh, sort of popped up fairly recently from uh, Montana, and they have um, actually, it's really cool. They have put um, antennas, they've embedded devices on bees, and so sure. they can actually impact where a bee can travel. <laughs> So they, they, they've figured out a way to manipulate bees. And so they believe that if we can teach the bees to go towards decomposing tissues, that they can then train the bees to go out in the environment and find them. You mean like cadaver bees? They're exactly what they are. Yes, they are cadaver bees. That's amazing. Yep. It would be pretty cool. <laughs> Anthony Falsetti is a professor of forensic science, an associate director of the Forensic Science Research and Training Laboratory at George Mason University. Mary Ellen O'Toole is a professor and director of the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University. The world's eyes are on Ukraine right now, but this is, of course, not the first time they've been in the global spotlight. In the 1990s, Jay Albanese traveled to Ukraine to study the extensive network of organized crime that cropped up there after the fall of the Soviet Union. Jay Albanese is a criminologist in the Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. He was also named an outstanding faculty by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Jay, after the fall of the Soviet Union, how quickly had organized crime taken root in that region? Organized crime always finds its opportunities and looks for ways to profit from existing corruption, a vacuum of power, uh, the ability to make money from an illicit product or service. When, when I was in Ukraine, for example, you would have people say, oh, the corruption here is really terrible. And I would remind my, my colleagues, well, wait a minute, let's look 100 years ago at uh, organized crime in Chicago and New York. Uh, organized crime groups ran those cities. Why? Because they controlled corrupt politicians. Uh, law, enforce law enforcement was untrained at that time, very easy to corrupt. Uh, there was no professionalization at that point. So in many ways, the corruption that the U.S. experienced during the heyday of organized crime is not dissimilar uh, to where Ukraine found itself in the early 90s, when all of a sudden there was no government at all. Was it just for a limited amount of time, or did it proliferate in the years following the collapse of the USSR? It takes years to establish government institutions get people with expertise running government agencies. You have to make sure that you can collect taxes, for example, to run the government. You have to make sure that the taxes aren't embezzled or misspent. How do you ensure free and fair elections in a location that has never done that? And then, you know, how do you enforce the law to make sure that local businesses aren't being extorted systematically to pay off 
local organized crime figures rather than paying taxes to the government. And it took, you know, Eastern Europe uh, quite a while uh, to do all, the, all these kinds of things. What sorts of criminal activities were being run out of these countries that were the most egregious? They were really of, of three types. Uh, the first was the provision of illicit goods. Uh, this is drugs, stolen and, and banned uh, property, th- things like that. And then illicit services, um, all kinds of fraud, human trafficking was set up, you know, as a service to provide, you know, slave labor, uh, sex trafficking, things like that. And then the third category was, of course, uh, the infiltration of business or government through through corruption and extortion and racketeering. There's been some great studies of human trafficking, asking trafficking victims who are found in Europe or North America what uh, motivated their choice of of root. And it's really fascinating things. Sometimes they didn't have a choice. Sometimes there was secondhand information. But the point is, all of this was cross-border activity. So nations, both on the developing side and the developed side, were all concerned about what was going to happen uh, when you have all these illicit flows of products and people. Why did you make your trip with others to Ukraine to study organized crime there in the late 90s? Well, we focused on uh, human trafficking. There were lots of uh, people, especially young women, leaving the country. And the reason they were leaving is that you couldn't get work. So people were leaving to support their families. You would look in the back of the English language papers in uh, in uh, Kiev and, and in Kharkiv, and uh, there would always be ads, you know, meet a Western gentleman, uh, become a, a dancer in the UK, all of these kinds of things, they knew they were taking a chance. Uh, but they thought, well, I'm young, I'm smart, I have my wits about me. If I could only get to, you know, the UK or Western Europe or wh- wherever it might be, I can find my way. So at least I can make some money and uh, send it back, you know, to, to my family. Instead, what would happen is that normally the recruiters would be local. And these people, yes, I can get you to the border or across the border. I have a corrupt connection there. Once you're across the border, then a different group would take you to get you to a city. And some people thought they were going to become, you know, dancers or housekeepers and so on. But what would happen somewhere along that chain, the rules would change between the transit and your destination point. The rules would change. The people would take your passport, said the price has gone up. Instead of a $10,000 journey, now it's $20,000. Until you pay me that money, which, of course, you don't have, uh, you are going to work for me. And so you're either going to be involved in uh, in the sex trade, uh, a drug courier, or even a household worker uh, operating under coercive conditions. So usually the human trafficking, in many cases, started as almost a forced migration, people migrating toward work. The International Labor Organization has called uh, human trafficking in the past as it's due to an imbalance in the global labor market. Everybody wants to work, make money, support their family. If there's no opportunity to do this where you are, and that's often due to uh, oppression or poor government, then uh, people look to go somewhere else to do what you and I would do. When you interview human trafficking victims, these people are doing what many of your listeners might do in the same circumstance. If you're in a location where you can't make money, you can't support your family, there's no hope for the future, and you might be oppressed due to your religion or race or ethnicity, uh, you look to leave to find work for the same reasons that you and I look to find work. How do you rate the efforts by the international community to combat organized crime in this region? Good, I I would say. And the UN has worked very effectively over the years. The UN Convention Against Transnational Organized Crime uh, in 2003, the UN Convention Against Corruption in 2005, these are binding international conventions ratified by the vast majority, more than 90% of the countries of the world. The result of these, now every country... Almost every country on the planet has uh, laws against human trafficking that didn't exist 20 years ago. 
uh, every country has specific laws about uh, about corruption and specific types of corruption, all right? That didn't exist 20 years ago. And through the training and technical assistance uh, funded by member states and often provided by the UN, you get your training of enforcement, your training of prosecution, judges, prevention programs uh, to give countries uh, the infrastructure to uh, to be effective against these things. So just to summarize, you don't win a war against organized crime or win a war against corruption. You make progress only through vigilance. You have to stay vigilant because there will always be backsliding. And that's why you need strong institutions, regular training, good education, uh, of an impartial justice system, and leaders who care about their country and not about themselves. And this is, you know, the ongoing struggle I think we see across the world. Jay Albanese, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Jay Albanese is a professor in the Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs at Virginia Commonwealth University. He was named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Costo are our interns. Special thanks this week to Jenny Taylor and Jordan Pfeiffer. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.